Welcome to Jonah Carey Podcast, friends. Thanks so much for tuning in. Today's guest is Jeff Passan. Jeff, one of the best baseball writers in the business, he writes and podcasts for Yahoo Sports, has done so for uh, well over a decade now. And uh, it is hard to find a guest who is going to combine thoughtful opinions with candor uh, stuff you won't get elsewhere, just little nuggets here and there. And, uh, humor, good sense of humor as well. It's it just, it's a really, really great conversation whenever I talk to Jeff. Um, even the stuff about, so we got into one of the topics we talked about was, um, the international player market. Listen for that one and you'll, you'll, you'll note a couple of things where you're like, what? Really? And Jeff has such, intimate knowledge of the industry and a real good finger on the pulse that he'll say things almost as an afterthought. And it's like, well, that could have been the lead right there. He's really good, really well sourced, uh, works his butt off and, uh, shows and really understands the game very well as well. So really a pleasure to talk to him about baseball. Uh, and, uh, you will get into this one. There's, uh, lots of, uh, really interesting topics to, uh, to explore as you will see. Thanks to Jeff for coming on the podcast and uh follow him on Twitter and all that good stuff. You will uh he's easy to find. Google Jeff Pass and you'll get all the stuff, all the columns, all the tweets, all the good stuff. Um some programming notes, CBS Sports, in addition to podcast, you will find more and more writing in the next a few weeks. Uh this week I wrote about the Atlanta Braves and how uh they were put together and uh everything that transpired last season. Uh, at the end in terms of them, uh, dismissing their general manager and then everything that's gone on since then. Pretty, it's pretty interesting stuff for Braves fans. And, uh, congrats to them for the division title, of course. So that'll be that. And I'll have a column coming out soon with my season ending awards. I'm also working on a longer form column about <coughs> another national league team, which I hope you'll enjoy. And yeah. And then for sportsnet.ca, you can check out my stuff on the Blue Jays every Thursday. I will have my season ender report card then. Also doing TV for Sportsnet on Saturday. So if you're watching the pregame show for the Blue Jays, you will catch me then. And, uh, that's about it. Getting ready for the playoffs. That'll be tons of fun. Next week's podcast guest is going to be a good one. Uh, a friend of the show. So I'm excited for that. And, uh, yeah, I hope you're all doing really, really well wherever you are. Uh, and, uh, I appreciate the support as always, uh, tell a friend if you like about this little show and have them subscribe to the podcast too. We'll call it a big podcast party. All right. Go enjoy this episode of Joan Carey podcast. It's with Jeff Passan. I'm delighted to be joined uh, by our next guest. Uh, the playoffs are upon us, and what better time to bring in one of the finest writers 
in the baseball world, nay, in any world, it is Jeff Passon. Jeff, how are you? I'm delighted to join you as well, Jonah. I'm doing great. Yourself? I am excellent, and I've got things that I want to address with you. And we could start right off. I wrote about the Atlanta Braves this week. Great story. You know, even though Oakland has been really good and all that, you could argue that the Braves are the Cinderella story in baseball this year. That even if you thought that Washington could somehow be dethroned, which not many of us did, the Phillies were the hot sleeper. Not necessarily the Braves. Here come the Braves. They do it. They do it uh, thanks to a bunch of acquisitions. Ender Inciarte, Mike Fultonowitz, uh, a bunch of bullpen guys, a bunch of prospects who come up through the system, Acuna, Albies, all these guys. And I sit back and I say, hmm, this team was constructed by John Coppolella and his lieutenants. And we are now roughly one year after the fact that John Coppolella was banned from baseball. And I know you wrote about this at the time, uh, Quite, you know, with no minced words whatsoever. And I found it interesting because obviously a suspension was coming. There was no question about it. The malfeasance mm-hmm. was widespread. There's no doubt about it. However, here are the people who've been banned for life from Major League Baseball. <laughs> There's the Black Sox. Okay. So they were paid to bet on the World Series, or to throw the World Series rather. There's Pete Rose. He gambled on baseball. There's Jenry Mejia, that's pretty standard for the course now at this point, it's he got suspended three times for PEDs, and there's Chris Correa, who went to jail for hacking. So, acknowledging that absolutely something had to happen to both Coppola and Gordon Blakely, who was one of his chief lieutenants, do you think with the year of hindsight looking back, that a lifetime suspension was warranted, or was it too heavy-handed by Major League Baseball? One of these things is not like the other. Yes. And... You know, having reported out what happened, I think Major League Baseball, you know, there's the term in in baseball when you're really angry at something and you get kind of frustrated and just sort of get, it's called the ass. You're called a red ass. Mm-hmm. I think baseball had the ass with John Coppolella because it thought that he was being dishonest when it was trying to get to the bottom of this. And I'll be honest, Jonah, I don't think that this story is over. Really? There, there, I don't. There there are things, let's say, kicking around these days uh, with regards to the Braves still, not with the current administration, but, but almost residue from what happened back when John Coppolella was in charge. And it, it was funny because – Yesterday, I was on Twitter, and I saw a couple of Braves fans, like, tweeted gifts at me, and they were replies to the story that I had written. And it's always funny when you're like, okay, what is what is this weird gif in response? Oh, yeah, that's right. It's in response to something I wrote a year ago. And, and, and I went back through the story, and I looked at it, and there was nothing in there talking about how – the Braves foundation that John Coppolella built, which which he unequivocally did. Yeah. He he had a huge hand in a lot of the acquisitions that they have right now and, and a lot of the core players that they have right now. There there was nothing criticizing that. No. I, I think criticism was more about how he conducted himself, which frankly was was reprehensible, and I think he would admit 
as much right now and that he was thrust into a job for which he simply was not prepared. And I think he has good baseball acumen. I think he has good (coughs) scouting skills. I think he has a number of excellent qualities that would benefit teams. I don't know, though, even if that lifetime ban gets lifted, whether anyone's going to give him a chance again. Hmm. And, and and I think there's a, there's an interpersonal element to that too. He rubbed a ton of people, not just in his own organization, but outside of it, the wrong way. And and yet it would be uh, it would be such a sad story to see the Braves where they are right now, a year ahead of schedule. I think, frankly, they remind yeah. me a lot of the 2015 Cubs in that regard. Mm-hmm. They are. I, I think we all had a pretty good sense that the Braves were going to be good. I did not think they would be this good this quickly. And with Mike Soroka at 20 and Luis Gohar, I think he's 21 or 22, and Tuki Toussaint and Colby Allard, I mean, all of those guys coming up this year, and Kyle Wright and Ian Anderson, who may be the best of them Mm. on the way, and Austin Riley now being blocked by Johan Camargo at third base, and Christian Pache. I mean, it's guy after guy after guy. They've just got an incredible farm system still after getting all those players taken away. And the notion that they're going to supplement this really good core that they have right now, and and, and credit to Alex Anthopoulos for landing Kevin Gosman for you know a bag of peanuts. Mm-hmm. I mean it, that was a that was the most underrated deadline trade. Um, and, and Fultonevich and you can go on and on about the guys they have. They're going to be here for a long time. And the fact that John Coppola doesn't get to enjoy that 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 he almost has to be revolted by it. I mean, I, I think there's pride in having built it, but the fact that he, he builds this, it's almost like building this beautiful house that you're not allowed to live in. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I can remember when the Diamondbacks became good. I'm blanking on, like, if it was Burns who led the team to the, who was the GM when they went back to the playoffs, but whoever his predecessor was, whether it was Garagiola or so forth. And there's just this interesting thing about shared credit in baseball and how this goes. It's whoever's in charge at the time, and Alex is, one of the great minds in the game. He's very aggressive going back to 15 with the Price and Tulo heists, mm-hmm. Halls, whatever you want to say, to, you know, the Gosman deal and all the stuff that he's done this year. And it's obviously shared, but it's, it really is interesting to see the, you know, the Braves organization really trying to distance themselves from the former regime. And, uh, and this happened. Understandably yeah. so. I mean, of it course. was a, it, it was pretty, it was a pretty low moment in the, uh, you know, in the franchise's history. And yet I think, that that if you if if you gave John Coppolell a truth serum, he'd say I'm just doing what everyone else was doing. I just got caught. Yep, and, and that's that's the reality here. I mean, the the business of baseball in Latin America is one that is rife with corruption. It's one of the one of the ugliest parts of the sport. And, uh, the, you know, there are people at Major League Baseball right now who are trying to clean it up. And I, I actually think that the efforts that they're making are pretty laudable. I think they may make a dent in some of the ugly dealings that have gone on there. But we're not just talking about signing kids early, which is what the Braves were, were guilty of. Yeah. We're talking about doping kids up when they're, 
preteens. I mean, it's it's gross some of the things that go on in the Dominican Republic, particularly and in Venezuela as well. And uh, it, it's interesting to me that that Major League Baseball, everything that is not covered by the Major League Baseball Players Association mm-hmm. tends to kind of go to hell. Mm-hmm. Whether it is the amateur draft um, and and the limitations that are put in place, whether it is minor league baseball, where uh, I I don't think I'm exaggerating here when I say they're being paid slave wages. Yeah, I mean that's that's just the reality of the situation. They are being paid under minimum wage, and the you know baseball players are baseball players coming up who do not have large signing bonuses are impoverished like in in literally every sense of the word yep. they need support from their parents to continue doing this and i suppose that's no different than a lot of other young people out there trying to make their way in the world but in a in a 10 billion dollar industry it's shameful and and it's unnecessary and the the idea that organi- that one organization hasn't said we're going to treat our minor leaguers differently hmm. and and seen that as some sort of a market advantage it shocks me i i almost think that i'm, I'm not going to say it's it's collusive but i almost think that there's the fear that if you're the one team that does it well of course every team's going to follow after that because that's going to be the new standard so teams have an agreement that they they don't need to treat minor leaguers particularly well so they don't you could not be preaching to the choir anymore. Several points here. Number one, um, if you fancy yourself a team that tries to get the most out of your system and acknowledge that some guys might be organizational filler, but you're still hoping that the 17th rounder pans out, uh, having them sleep six to a two bedroom and eat nothing but peanut butter all the time is probably not the best way to tease the most out of their athletic ability. So you're actually submarining yourself uh, with these slave wages and to some extent. And I think there is a competitive advantage to be had here Two, um, totally agree about the international market. And in fact, uh, I think your, your sense of, I mean, we're talking about labor and, and all the ways in which labor is being mistreated. I am the true believer Bernie Sanders guy, I guess, in this respect, in that I would abolish the international system completely. I would get rid of the draft, and I would just say, all right, you're just like Ariana Grande. If you're 16 years old and you have talent, we can sign you, and that's the end of that. This will never, ever, ever, ever happen. Ever happen. It will never nope. happen. But Of course, because because you, because you, you, can't, you can't put that – I mean, it's, it's Pandora's box. Yes. You, that it has escaped and it's never going to come back even though it's right and and admittedly admittedly the large market teams would take unbelievable advantage yes of that situation to hoard amateur talent and the chasm between the large and small markets which is great now would be even greater under that system and would would disadvantage the the Oakland's in Tampa Bay's and Kansas City's of the world more than it already does. Of course, Oakland and Tampa Bay are the fifth and sixth best team in the American League, which this year, considering – actually, you could probably argue that Oakland's even higher than Cleveland. We're, we're going to get to that, though. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, all, t- true to all that, but I would say that 
the, the way to potentially counterbalance, again, this is something that would never happen, but if we're going to go down this trail, totally agree, of course, the richer teams would do this, is you make revenue sharing way more aggressive than it is. In other words, if you want to buy in, if you're a guy or a Steinbrenner or whatever, and you're like, I want control of the New York market, perfect. It's going to cost you $7 billion to buy this franchise, and you're going to throw in insane amounts of revenue sharing. Because if you really want to have competitive balance, I totally agree that every step that you take against that is a problem for the industry. Then you just funnel money. You just keep funneling and funneling. This is not the problem of players. It is not the problem of labor. The 94 strike, which I'm sure you could guess, still chafes me to this day for multiple reasons. (laughs) The fact that it came down to the owners saying, Jerry Reinsdorf basically saying, hey, we're not going to be responsible for any of this. Let's take it out of the players' hides is revolting. And I'm not saying it doesn't occur in every industry. If you want to go to Silicon Valley or if you want to go to Wall Street or whatever, there are crappy uh, business practices everywhere. Management will always try to screw over labor. But it is it becomes more and more difficult in a way to even be a sports fan when it is so blatantly obvious what's going on. And of course, if you can make it to the top of your profession, you're Mike Trout, you're going to make $300 million. But there's so much chaff, so much that gets flushed down the toilet. All the kids who, you know, don't make it and are as you said, impoverished, all the football players, if we're going to go wider, who have their lives and brains scrambled, it, it, it can really, you have to almost have suspension of disbelief, knowing what we know in 2018, to be a sports fan of any kind, and I include baseball in that department. Preach on, Rabbi Carey. <laughs> all right, let's talk about some other stuff. So <clears throat> one of the things I want to get to as well is Jacob deGrom. You wrote a piece about Jacob deGrom. And you said, uh, we should vote for Jacob deGrom for Cy Young because he deserves to win something. It's a great piece. It lays out deGrom's numbers. It talks about the silly and antiquated stat that is wins and how Jacob deGrom should be penalized for this. That Max Scherzer and Aaron Nola, you could throw Pat Corbin and a few other guys in there are awesome. But deGrom deserves to win. And my bailiwick for probably two or three months now is, yes, and Jacob deGrom should be the most valuable player in the National League as well. Because I don't care about anything except value, and Jacob DeGrom is the most valuable player in the National League. I don't know if you're voting for anything this year. I have manager of the year in the, in the NL. Uh, but if you were an MVP voter, would Jacob DeGrom get consideration for you? And if so, yes. And if not, why not? I have the American League Rookie of the Year ballot. Okay. And I'm bummed that I do not have a National League MVP ballot because I would vote for Jacob DeGrom. Okay. And I, and I have been making that case as well. And, there's going to be a point, I believe, at which the electorate in the Baseball Writers Association of America stops conflating winning teams with MVP. Yes. And I don't know when that's going to be. I mean, I think for the most part with, with Felix Hernandez and, and his 13 and 12 Cy Young winning season and with DeGrom maybe not even reaching 10 wins this year and he's going to win the Cy Young. Mm. I think we, I think we're there with pitchers. Yep. But I think that getting pitchers and, and not just pitchers with like a bunch of wins. Like if you go and look at the pitchers who have won MVP, they have big counting stats. Yes. Like, like Justin Verlander, I think he, I think he, I think he was 24 and five Mm -hmm. in his MVP winning season. And, and why, Pitcher wins count toward MVP, but they they don't toward Cy Young. I don't quite understand. I mean, 
No, listen, we, we live in an America where Donald Trump is president. So my <laughs> faith in voting systems is is no longer what it once was. And and yet I, I look at the case Jacob deGrom has, and it is to me the absolute perfect storm for a game-changing vote. Yeah. There are no – and this is no disrespect intended to Christian Yelich or Matt Carpenter or Nolan Arenado or Javier Baez or Lorenzo Cain or Paul Goldschmidt or any of the like half to a dozen guys who all have somewhere between five and six wins above replacement. They're yeah. all just bunched together. They are all having really good years. And they are all really good players. They have not been close to what Jacob deGrom nope. has been this year. And if you want to look at pure value, I think an interesting way to look at it is what what percentage – and war – mind you, war is a flawed stat. I've yes. said that from the start. Sure. I especially think – I especially think Fangraph's war for pitchers is kind of bullshit. Well, it's filled because- independent. It's different, yeah. Exactly. It, it is a FIP-based war, and FIP does not actually say what you did. FIP is a predictive statistic, mm. and I and I understand wanting to isolate home runs, uh, walks, and strikeouts because those are the three true outcomes. Those are yep. the, the things that tell you best what a pitcher is likely to do, but it doesn't exactly tell you what a pitcher has done. And so I, you know, I'm going to say that when you look at baseball reference war, Max Scherzer and Aaron Nola, I believe, have been and may still be ahead of Jacob deGrom. So this is not a pure war case. Mm -hmm. To me, it is, it is the fact that on a really bad team, a bad hitting team and uh, not a Phillies bad fielding team, but a pretty freaking bad fielding team. Jacob deGrom went out there with zero margin for error in practically every game he pitched and has put up a 1-8 ERA, has struck out 250 plus guys, has, you know, I don't think quality starts matter, but uh, look, if you can do, if you can go out at least six innings and give up three or fewer runs 28 times in a row, yeah. you're doing something right. <laughs> like it, it, you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of, um, RBIs. Like if you drive in 120 RBIs mm-hmm. in a year, that may just be context dependent, but over the course of, I don't know, you know, your career, if you get 1500, means you're a good player. It's the sure. same thing with wins. Wins year by year are not that big of a deal. But if you have 200 wins, you are a good ass pitcher. Simple as that. And so the, the fact that Jacob deGrom has been able to do what he has done in the circumstances under which he's done it, he is the MVP of the National League, even if he's not going to win the award. Good ass is a good uh, descriptor. I like this. I'm going to steal it. I like it a lot. I want to talk about uh, ambiguity in voting systems, too. So uh, there's the way that I think about me uh, as a baseball writer to some extent is what I was doing before I joined the BBWA and what I did afterwards, only because you start to vote for things. So 
I'm usually I seem to be NL manager of the year every year. I guess it's just it's, it's That's, that is that is the worst vote too. It's, I like I struggle with manager of the year and I I am I'm the chapter chairman of the Kansas City chapter. Yeah. And and I will admit I never give myself manager of the year cuz I hate it. I I, I don't <laughs> I, like I'm not the guy who gives himself the MVP or Cy Young every year. Like I I try to spread yeah. it around. I don't give myself manager of the year cuz I think it's a stupid award that's <laughs> I do. I think it's a stupid award that's based on our preconceptions rather than what actually happened. Bob Melvin probably is going to win this year because the A's weren't supposed to be good. Brian yeah. Snicker is probably going to win this year because yep. the, the, the Braves weren't supposed to be good. Like, it's just very rote. Well, so we'll go back to the ambiguity in voting for a second, but let's touch on the manager of the year just because, like, it's something that's on the brain. I really have to – I try to deliver an informed vote. And in my mind, despite me being an analytics guy, the number one thing a manager can do is prevent his players from throttling each other over the course of a 162-game season. <laughs> and that now you're getting into leadership. Now, I'm not saying that leadership doesn't exist. Of course it does. It might even be possible to measure it. But who are you going to talk to to figure this yeah. out? If you yes. talk to the players and they're winning 100 games, they're all going to say, this is a great manager. If you talk Absolutely. to players winning 60, they're going to say it's terrible. Same thing with the media, same thing with anything else. And sometimes you could even have microaggressions where the closer and the first baseman hate each other and so they don't like coming to work every day even if you are winning 95 games so that can affect how you perceive the manager and it becomes so difficult and then you start getting into media narratives so i mean i can remember you know checking in on the Rays 10 years ago and everybody saying joe madden is a great leader and this and that and now it's solidified now joe madden is a great leader no matter what so if Joe Madden's a great leader and the Cubs win 62 games this year, maybe Joe Madden should be the manager of the year anyway because exactly, he never stops exactly having right. his skills. That's, that's the thing exactly that gets me. right. And last that, year when I had the ballot, I think one of the guys that I voted for, the team maybe didn't make the playoffs because I was like, this guy, it might have been, Bob, well, but I guess the Rockies did make it. I'm trying to remember what I did, but it was a year or two ago or whatever. I voted for a guy. I'm like, this guy's always been a good manager. So, you know, their number two starter went down for the season. Who cares? He's still a good manager. I mean, is Don Mattingly for taking this absolute dog shit Marlins team to 62 and 94 record right now in consideration? Because <laughs> when I, I mean, when I was talking to, to people before the season, they're like, this team might win 55 games, yeah. might win 55. Um, I, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go that far for Buck Showalter in the American League, but the, I, I think the point that you made that's really important, leadership is a very, 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 very real thing. Yeah. And, and, and the difficulty in quantifying it is compounded by the fact that we're simply not there to see it every day. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm not saying that, that you must see something to know it, but to have an informed vote. I feel like you need to see it and at least talk with people as much as possible. And and I just don't know under the, the constraints of our jobs whether the vast majority of people with these ballots are capable of doing that. And and that, to me, makes the manager of the year vote a little bit farcical. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm going to do my best anyway. It'll probably be Snicker. I don't know. I'm not even allowed to say who, I'm, who I may or may not be voting for. We'll see. I've always liked Craig Council, so we'll see. Um, Craig Council's good, man. Yeah, I think Craig Council is. Uh, I don't. I don't know how well you know him. He is sharp as hell. Yeah, I mean, only a little bit, but that's that's been the consensus across the industry too. And last year was a tough one. I can remember because there were several teams. I was like, oh, that guy, that guy, you know. And in Colorado, I spent some time with Bud Black. I was like, all right, I get this guy. I get what he's doing. Anyway, mm -hmm. um, so we'll go back to the ambiguity in voting. So having once you join the BBWA and you start voting for things, you start getting the ballot. So as opposed to like. Okay, I don't have a ballot. Maybe I'm a 
you know, I'm part of the public. I don't have a ballot, but I can see who the MVP is. I see that it's so-and-so has this many home runs or war or whatever. And you see the ballot and you see the instructions on the ballot. And the instructions and, and the way that voting is done in general is very interesting to me. So going back to MVP for a second, you know, and, and we make fun of this argument, but it's, well, the Cy Young is for pitchers and the MVP is for hitters. It is instructive to look at the ballot and the ballot says nothing. So now you are free to decide nothing. It says nothing. Fill in names is what it says. So you're free to decide what you think. And so that invites opinion. And so now if you in your mind have decided that only pitchers can win Cy Young, then almost by definition you're not going to vote for pitcher. And in the um, Hall of Fame voting, it's not quite ambiguity, but it's the idea of not making it easy for the voters. A few years ago we were sitting in a meeting, I don't know if it was San Diego or where it was, and we voted that we said, okay, well, ideally we'd have an up and down vote. I think Derek Gould might have been the president at the time. And he said, let's just have it that you can vote for everybody. You want to vote for 70 guys on the, whatever, 30 guys on the ballot? Go ahead and vote for Pat Listash if you want to. Whoever you want, doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> Pat Listash, that's what I can come up with. Uh, that was, you know what though? It, it, of, of all the polls there, Pat Listash was like <laughs> top 10th percentile. That was really good. Thank you. I think I'm a, I'm a hardcore. I, I, I was, I was hoping you would go Brian L. Hunter, but Listash is. Yeah. Not even the good Brian Hunter. No. So uh, you could do the list dash way, or you could just say, we're going to make it from 10 to 12, because at the time what was happening, it's loosened a little tiny bit, because now mm -hmm. we're starting to vote in more guys. But at the time, there were literally 17 or 18 deserving candidates. And the Hall of Fame and Jeff Otteson came back and said, no, no, we're good with 10. We, you have 10 fingers, you're going to go with 10. And I think there's something to the idea of, controversy being good for the brand that if we're going to argue after the MVP or argue after the Hall of Fame voting it keeps baseball on the brain and people like it do you think this is intentionally happening with the award voting maybe even more so with the Hall voting or is this just stubbornness or what because I feel like this is almost part of the plan here to purposely befuddle us and make us have our hands tied in terms of what we do when we vote I mean, if it is part of the plan, I've I've totally fallen prey to it because <laughs> I gave up my Hall of Fame vote. Oh, okay. I, I was just honestly, I was just tired of it. Yep. I was tired. I was tired of the thing that sent me over the edge was the Joe Morgan letter. Yes. And and a number of people since then have come up to me and said, "Hey, don't let a bitter, you know, old man go ahead and change your views or perspective or, you know, you're, you're letting him win. And, and I'm like, no, I, I don't think I'm letting him win. I don't want to participate in a process that is corrupted to the core. Letting him win would be continuing to do that because it would belie who I am and what I stand for. And the, the idea that Joe Morgan, the, the hypocrite that he is, can send a letter out from the Hall of Fame's email address decrying steroid users when his peers were among the heaviest users of amphetamines in yeah. baseball and, and to act as sanctimonious as he does about the, a Hall of Fame just filled with bad people. And, and that's not to say that, that bad people do not deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. I think the Hall of Fame is at its core a museum and a museum tells the story of history and the story of history in baseball does include steroid users and does include steroids. And, yeah. and the idea that you're trying to whitewash this into some bucolic, lovely, wonderful place in idyllic Cooperstown, New York, 
where nothing bad ever happens. It's, it's just bullshit to the core. And that, that to me is what the intention of the hall is that they, they want to do everything that they can to keep the facade alive. But the thing about facades, man, they, they always crumble. They always crumble over time. And I think that's going to happen with the Hall of Fame. And, and when it does, you know, maybe, maybe I'll reconsider at that point because it was a privilege to vote. I really took it seriously and I really enjoyed it. And I really felt like I was contributing in, in that, that it meant something. I liked voting for Tim Raines. <laughs> every, every, every year I had a ballot, I voted for Tim Raines yeah. because I felt like he, you know, he was my, he, he wasn't quite my hero growing up like he was yours, but Tim Raines in RBI baseball to me is the Beast. greatest, the greatest player of, of any game ever made. Wow. Not any baseball game. I would take Tim Raines RBI baseball over Bo Jackson. Today. I was just going to say over Bo Jackson. Bo Jackson Absolutely. literally could not be stopped. I, uh, listen, when I'm reins at the plate, he cannot be stopped either. Wow. I either do, I either slap a single through the left side and steal second and then score when I pinch hit Dale Murphy for Ryan Sandberg <laughs> second, or I yank a home run to right field. Reigns was a terror in RBI baseball. <laughs> I have, I have no uh, rebuttal to this whatsoever. I'm with you 100%. I, I want to ask you about the uh, subject of con- contrition too. So, we talked about Coppola and how one of the things that chafed MLB was that the guy was like, well, everybody's doing this. I didn't even ask you, by the way, about why nobody from the Red Sox took the heat for it. They lost a few picks and that was it. Dave Dombrowski's still there in good standing and everything. You know what? Why don't we do that first? Why didn't anybody from the Red Sox actually get busted for this other than the fact that they lost some picks? I think because the Red Sox told the truth instantaneously. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. They cop, they cop to it. So, so going back to that then. It seems like contrition is such a huge deal in baseball, almost excessively so, because it's, I mean, I'm trying to think, like, in a court of law, like, I mean, if you're unapologetically, I killed those 10 people and it was awesome, or I'm really sorry, like, I guess there can be a difference in the sentence, theoretically, but it, it feels like baseball, that's kind of a strange thing, like, I, I don't, I don't quite... Look at Andy Pettit. Well, that's it, Andy Pettit, I think Jason Giambi has a more sympathetic persona than we might otherwise... Uh, you know, go for and like Bonds. The media didn't like Bonds in the first place, but Bonds, you know, just he won't he won't be apologetic about this stuff. And should that even factor into the calculus? Should we sit here and say, oh well, this guy yes, and this guy no, because this guy's a nice guy and this guy isn't? Like again, if we have you know Cap Anson in the Hall of Fame, I, I don't know. I mean. Are we making too big a deal about the fact that somebody might even just be a crocodile tears apology, but somebody goes ahead with an apology and that's supposed to change our opinion? I mean, that's the difficult thing. You, you wonder how sincere it is. And personally, if somebody makes a mistake and is immediately contrite about it, yeah. I'm far, I, I am far likelier to feel sympathetic toward that person. Now, are you going to cast a wary eye going forward? Uh, of course. You're, you know, you're going to be on the lookout because there's nothing, as a journalist, there's nothing worse than believing someone's story and then them going back and doing the same thing and you looking like a sucker. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I, I, I naturally 
trust people, maybe to a fault sometimes. And so uh, a little bit of skepticism or some extra skepticism is warranted. But if somebody acknowledges a mistake and and comes out and actively takes measures to to change it, like I, I don't know the answer to this. I want to know what Josh Hader did hmm. after after the All-Star game. I want to know what he what he spoke with Billy Bean about and how he tried to educate himself because to me you know the the sloppiness of that post game press uh briefing I guess that he did yeah. I, I I don't even blame that on him he just got bad advice that night he got bad he got shoved out there he had no idea what to say he was not prepped um and and frankly, he's he's not, and most people aren't the the type that can go and freelance there and say what needs to be said. There are very few people in sports who have the the conscientiousness to process something like that immediately. That being said, if Josh Hader really was sorry about what he said, how did he follow it up? That to me shows that if there is contrition there and that contrition is supplemented by actual thought, then, then yeah, we, we should forgive. We absolutely should because people can change. I don't, I, I don't want to live in a world where I think people can't change because that is the most awful dystopian place possible. Yeah. You make a mistake. You're branded for life. That it's, it's funny you mentioned that too, because I'm thinking of hater. Like I, Mike Vasallo to me is one of my favorite PR guys in all of baseball and if that's for the Brewers, and if that's yeah, Mike wasn't there, <laughs> right? Well, and that could be part of it, that's, but you, but but it's also just like that's, that's exactly what it was. Yeah, and that, that's possible, and and you know, so the, it's it's possible that people that work in addition to just aren't armed with this agency to be able to coach a player. Should a player's agent, like if Scott Boris or whoever is your agent, mm-hmm. in addition to sitting the player down and say, okay, here's what you need to do to get good. Do you send them to media training? Do you have them read, I don't know, books about Gandhi to, to, to kind of, it's just, it's a funny thing, the way that we perceive athletes. And I know that as media, we're such suckers. I don't have to group everybody. Let's say that I'm a sucker for guys who are smart, for guys who are thoughtful. I really like Pat Neshek and AJ Ellis, and maybe everybody does. You know, I, mean, I, I fall for all that stuff hook, line, and sinker because they're smart and thoughtful and they have interesting things to say about the game and they'll talk to you and whatever. And you're not supposed to do that, but it's hard not to be seduced by that. And I wonder if, like, is there somebody who's supposed to do this for every player? And I will include players uh, of Latin descent who, you know, do, mm-hmm. are you supposed to arm these players with a way to make them see more warm and fuzzy in the eyes of the media so that they can be treated better as players. I don't know if there's a, a paint by numbers way to do that necessarily. Yeah. I think in, I think in the case of hater, the, the, what should have been done that night is the brewers should have put out a, an apologetic statement, just a one paragraph, I screwed up. I was young. This was wrong. Yep. I apologize to fans, teammates, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then rush him back to Milwaukee and spend the next 24 hours 
drilling him on the questions he's going to receive and and help figure it out. I, there there is there is so much money to be made in sports public relations strategy, like yes, crisis yes, strategy. Yes. Dan Wetzel, my colleague at Yahoo Sports for years, has has jokingly said he needs to open a crisis sports crisis PR firm. He does though, because the, these these instant these incidents happen, and like Jeff Luno coming out and saying. We did unprecedented due diligence on Roberto Osuna. Are you shitting me? I mean, it it was just, it it was such crap. And I, I almost laugh at it because it's like, like, listen, I'm not a particularly smart guy, but if I can see through that, obviously something's wrong there. Yeah. It's, it's it's a struggle for sure. And And it comes up all the time in every sport. It's, it's, uh, it's difficult, and I don't know about you, but I'll get these PR emails saying, "Hey, Jonah, did you hear about the so and so? Doctor blah 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 is here to comment. Like it's, it's experts who will jump out and say it. I'm like, why isn't Doctor blah 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 consulting with Kevin Pillar or Roberto Osuna or Roger Chapman or whoever? It's it's very interesting. Um, I want to ask you about the service time rules uh, as they apply to guys like Vladimir Guerrero Jr. So I wrote a piece about it, and I actually took a shot at a solution. And as soon as I wrote, I'm like, this is slapdash and whatever i i had thought about this for a while i was on deadline and that day i said okay we're gonna do a payout system where the first team to promote his their guy whoever's rated number one by baseball america gets a payout of so-and-so number two gets so-and-so number three gets so-and-so in a, in a particular year now of course you can game the system if you're tampa bay you can call a bully adamas first instantaneously because tampa bay apparently lives in a banana republic where they have no money whatsoever which is always interesting <laughs> uh and, and you could go on and on about this stuff Everybody is in agreement that it sucks. What actually should we do about it? I've tried to, man. I have tried to figure out a solution that is amenable to all parties. I have asked people far smarter than I, what can we do? And I'm telling you, there there is no solution that hits all of the points. Mm. There, there is, there is nothing out there, I believe, that disincentivizes teams from holding players back while still allowing teams to reap the benefits of calling them up early. And that's, that's what's at play here. The teams right now want to have their cake and eat it too. And because of that, the players are the ones who end up getting screwed. And I just don't know if they're go- if teams are going to be willing to give up the system and the advantage that they've got now unless they get remarkable concessions. And and I I I just I don't see the Major League Baseball Players Association being willing to give up things to get this changed, even if service time manipulation is as egregious as it is. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I wish we had an answer. And the problem is, of course, that if the union puts forth a bunch of concessions, it feels like the union is getting hosed in a whole bunch of different ways. So what, they got to bend on this too? I mean, like it's just, the, right. the balance of power has gone the other way. Maybe it's Marvin Miller going away. Maybe it's Don Fear going away. I don't know, but I, I don't, 
the union feels weaker every day that we sit here for all kinds. Maybe it's just that we're becoming more aware of all the problems in baseball, but I don't know, man. It doesn't feel like this is a militant union that's standing up for the things that they need to stand up. I, I, th- I think the union is a sleeping giant. Really? I, th- I do. I think, I think the union is a sleeping giant, and if ever the players are willing to mobilize and toss aside their, their little fiefdoms of uh, whether it's Latin American players wanting a new system down there, um, whether it is uh, major league players essentially not acting like minor league players exist. I think if baseball players writ large come together, they can be an overwhelming force hmm. because uh, in the end, we, we love our players, man. Yeah. And, and I understand that the predilection is to lean toward management I don't know why fans do that. They just do. But I think players have a very compelling case to make and that if they start working together and that the leadership uh, starts making better decisions than it has over the last couple of years, then then the union could be a formidable force. I, I want to briefly go back to the management point. I, I think it's because it, people identify with team that Mike Trout is, is my favorite player right. until he gets, you know, that he becomes a Yankee and that's the end of it. And moreover, I think that the day that they decided to publish salaries, which was, I guess, 1875, whatever, is the day <laughs> that people say, well, wait a minute, I drive a bus or I do this, or even if I'm a hedge fund manager, I don't make as much as these guys. And that's that. And we don't know, you know, what, what the real profits are. Of I mean, no the, the union, the union has such a, a great ability to win the public relations war there, though. We're talking about millionaires versus billionaires. Of course we are. And, and the, the billionaires who have started raking in tens upon tens of millions of dollars in profit every year yeah. and and have an, uh, an unequitable split of revenue from Major League Baseball Advanced Media, which has turned into a cash cow itself and a, a multi-billion dollar business. I mean, there, there are so many things that if the player's PR strategy was right, I think they could win. But MLB is just overwhelming them right now. And, and it's apparent. And I worry – about 2021 and i worry about the possibility of a labor war yeah i don't think i mean I, i've agreed with you on every point i don't think i agree with you on the point about winning the public favor because i think that it really comes down to team and i think the vast majority of sports fans are not like you and i aren't thinking oh my god these disenfranchised workers whether they're minor leaguers who are truly impoverished or the second baseman making 10 million dollars a year they just don't think of it that way they say i'm from orange county and i'm an angels fan and that's the end of that and they don't want to deal with these problems, whether they are, I think even if they're liberal, I think that if they're liberal, yeah, they might, you know, they might believe in the local steel workers or whatever, but this is the one place where they can get away from the troubles of their life and the kids who are screaming at them and whatever problems that they have and just say, you know what, I just want to watch Mike Trout rake, man, just leave me alone, just please let me do this. I think that's like the vast majority of sports fans. I don't think sports fans are particularly enlightened. I don't think know that they're less enlightened than the public at large. I just think that sports are a pastime. They're, they're a distraction. And again, even if your politics are left, I'm not sure that you're like, oh, wow, this is obviously unfair. Therefore, I don't think people are going to do that. 
I think that is a totally reasonable point, and the fact that I have as much faith in the public as I do shows that I'm an unrelenting optimist. <laughs> and so you can go live in, in your sad, sad world, Jonah Carey, and I'm going <laughs> to stay over here in my corner with rainbows and puppies. All right, I have one last question, Mr. Rainbows and Puppies. Uh, you wrote a book called The Arm. It's one of my favorite books, sports or otherwise, that I've read probably ever. Really, really good, well-researched. Uh, you know, I have been obsessed with pitching injuries and pitchers and, and I've talked to Glenn Flysick 37 times too. And I still came out of this book. He's great. And I came out of this book saying, wow, this is really revelatory. And even for somebody who's a hardcore, this is a great book. So we have Shohei Otani. Shohei Otani is the most interesting athlete maybe in the world right now for a billion reasons. And the Tommy John thing actually makes him more interesting. Because he is probably going to have Tommy John surgery and might hit and might could win MVP. He could hit 40 home runs and be uh-huh. a DH. He could be J.D. Martinez and be rehabbing every day. Based on your research and based on the arm and based on the people that you've talked to and the sources that you've talked to, is there risk in doing this? Does this slow down his rehab? Does this affect his future as a pitcher? Or can he realistically just go out there, play every day, and mash, and that's the end of that? Oh, there's definitely risk, but the risk isn't nearly as significant as I thought it might be. Okay. I talked to an, I talked to a number of doctors and they said, uh, you know, they, they looked through the database and just didn't find any injuries to the UCL from hitting. And mm. I understand that it, granted it's going to be a new UCL, but, uh, we look at Glaber Torres and Glaber Torres is actually a pretty comparable case to Shohei Otani because yep. Uh, he hits right-handed and it was his left arm and, uh, Shohei Otani, uh, excuse me, he hits, yeah, hits right-handed, it was his left arm. Otani hits left-handed and he's going to be rehabbing his right arm yeah. and the, the lead arm, um, is, is, has far less stress than the trail arm hmm. when you're swinging a bat. So I'm, I'm optimistic about it. I'm looking forward to seeing what he can do over 150 games. I hope he gets back by spring training. I think he's, you know, unnecessarily delaying it, but, uh, he wants to win rookie of the year, I suppose, and I don't blame him. Uh, I like all of this. I also like the fact that you managed to throw in a rookie of the year thing just to make us uh, wonder even more about what your ballot's going to be, so we'll see. <laughs> you, you will see in November, Mr. Gary. Uh, Jeff, this has been great. We'll follow your work at Yahoo on the writing side, on the podcasting side, and all that good stuff, and I appreciate your time. Thank you, sir. Pleasure is always mine, brother. Take it easy.